Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Loading Screen, a podcast where we help you, the listener, discover new video game genres. As always, I'm your host, Tristan, joined by Raza, and we have a special guest, Eric Ferraro from Slothworks. Yeah, hi, nice to meet everyone. Cool, and... I hope you are believing in the heart of cards today because we're about to embark on a challenging journey because we'll be discussing roguelike deck builders today. That was the nerdiest start to this podcast that we could have possibly had. <laughs> Jesus Christ. You, you didn't like that one more than the, the <laughs> trenches comment that I made for the tactical shooter one? No, I think that was probably the worst start. That was definitely the worst start. So. Rosa, come I'm, on, I, I spend time writing these up. <laughs> the difference is I've actually played this a few games in this genre, and so I, I feel a bit more familiar with it than, than I was with the tactical. I feel like if it's not if it's not a little bit nerdy, we're not really reaching the target audience on this one. So. <laughs> no, no, definitely not, definitely not. Um, actually, before we jump into it, Eric, did you want to introduce yourself a little bit more? Yeah, yeah. So my name is Eric. Um, I develop games under the name uh, Slothworks. Um, and, uh, uh, I have a couple published games, um, uh, both in what I call the Meteor Fall series. So, um, uh, there's two games. One is called Meteor Fall Journeys. The second is called Meteor Fall, uh, Crummit's Tale. Um, and both kind of loosely follow what we're going to be talking about today, which is the, uh, the card-based deck builder, uh, format. And so, you know, we'll go into detail on that. Um, I have a, uh, a partner that I work with named Evgeny. Um, he's kind of the other, you know, uh, primary me- member. Uh, I have a writer that I work with, uh, Danny, and then we work with various other collaborators from, from time to time as well. Um, yeah. That's pretty cool. How did you guys get started? Yeah, it's a great question. So, um, so I, I came up with an idea for, uh, Meteor Fall at some point in, in 2017, um, you know, and I can talk more about the, the game later, but, um, you know, basically I, you know, I was learning unity at the time. Um, I've always really loved card-based deck builders. Um, and so I had a, a concept that I was pretty excited about. And, um, I just started messaging random, uh, artists on, on different forums. Um, mm-hmm. and I ran into, uh, Evgeny on Behance, uh, which is a, uh, a platform where artists publish their portfolio, and so, yeah, I just reached out and asked if he'd be interested in, in collaborating on the project. And, um, you know, thank, thankfully he, he said yes. And um, he, um, I think, you know, Evgeny drove a lot of like the distinct visual style of, uh, of the Meteor Fall game. So, um, yeah. And then I met some of the other collaborators through uh, Twitter, through Instagram and, and various other places where artists hang out. Gotcha. Very cool. Yeah, I've played a couple hours of your game, Eric, and it is definitely a very memorable game. Um, really difficult, uh, but it's also yeah. <laughs> quite famous. Uh, you know, I think it was on the uh, Apple WWDC page. Yeah. So it's, it's you know we're we're in the presence of a celebrity today. <laughs> a very very minor celebrity, perhaps. <laughs> um, well, yeah. I mean, I think you probably have the most history with this genre um, compared to. Uh, you know, me and Tristan. So we're really hoping to, to kind of dig into your experience here. Yeah. Um, we usually kick off a lot of our podcasts with just talking about how we define the genre in general. Mm-hmm. Um, this one's pretty unique in that it's kind of a hybrid of two uh, two genres. So maybe you can like dive into how you would define both of those and, and tell us a little bit about what makes the genre unique. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that, as the name implies, like, you know, roguelike deck builders, um, you know, I think you're right. It, it is a fusion of, of two genres. Um, and I think, um, you know, the, the roguelike piece, I think it's a little bit harder to define because I think the, um, you know, the definition has perhaps changed over time. Um, you know, the, the original the, you know, term, you know, where does roguelike the, the term come from? Um, you know, that, that term is based on a, uh, you know, a, a 1980s game uh, called Rogue, which was, um, you know, sort of seen as, as the first in the genre. And, um, you know, over time, I think what that means has become more, more generalized. But, you know, sort of at its core, you know, roguelites are typically, um, you know, characterized by, um, you know, typically there's some sort of dungeon crawling, uh, procedural, procedurally generated content is also very common. So, Rather than having like set stages or set levels, like dungeons are typically um, randomly generated over time, mm-hmm. um, and um, 
permadeath is also a, a common theme. So typically when you, you hear roguelike, what it means is, you know, you're going to die and you're going to replay the game again. It's roguelikes are not games generally where you, you know, play through it once and then you move on to something else. It's, it's sort of designed that you're going to play through it multiple times. And that's going to be interesting because each time you run through it, it's, it's going to be a little bit different. Um, I think in, in various, you know, different gaming communities, you'll you'll have people debate about, you know, what qualifies as a, a roguelike exactly. Um, the original rogue game was, um, you know, it was ASCII. So instead of having graphics, it had, you know, text characters. Mm-hmm. Um, it's typically, you know, tile-based or has a grid-based movement system. And so, um, you know, I think there's, there, yeah, there's a lot of debate about, you know, what qualifies. But, you know, generally I would say, um, you know, typically their dungeon, uh, dungeon crawling is a, you know, sort of a theme and environment. Um, typically the content is procedurally generated and typically games are, are, you know, turn-based and, and difficult. So you're, you're going to die often. Um, and so that's, um, you know, that's sort of what, you know, what, what roguelikes, um, you know, how I would define roguelikes. I think the, um, uh, you know, I think Another another term you'll hear uh, kind of thrown around a lot um, is is roguelites. Um, ro- so roguelike versus roguelite, <laughs> and um, <laughs> e- e- yeah, just it. just if we want to make things even even more complicated, and um, the the definition or sort of the difference between those two is that uh, roguelites um, typically have more um, uh, meta progression that carries over between runs, so. Um, games where, like, well, typically in the original Rogue and other traditional roguelikes, when you die, you start over, you start fresh. There's no progress. There's no, um, you know, sort of unlockables or, or things like that. Yeah. Um, and a lot of what people might call roguelikes today, other people might call roguelite. So um, I think, uh, you know, Hades might be an example here where, um, you know, even when you die, you... Um, uh, you know, you gain some resources which permanently unlock future bonuses or um, uh, unlock future content or something. And I would say, um, you know, a lot of what people call roguelikes today, you know, are more like roguelites where there's some sort of meta progression that carries over. Um, and I think this this does help to make those types of games more accessible where you don't feel like your progress is wasted after, you know, dying um, in, a, in a dungeon after an hour or something like that. Yeah. I want to ask you a question yeah. because I know you you like very punishing games. <laughs> um, <laughs> we were just talking about Elden Ring earlier yeah. today. Yeah. Um, what is your preference between roguelites and roguelikes in terms of like, do you prefer to have runs that are, you know, starting from scratch, clean slate, or do you mm. like this kind of meta progression that carries over? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I definitely like both. I, I For me, I like I like having some goal to work towards because I do think it keeps the game fresh. Um, I think um, one game I think does this pretty well is, um, is Slay the Spire. And um, that game does have progression, but um, the progression in that game is what I would call horizontal um, progression. So rather than making your character more powerful, it opens, you know, different strategic options. So... Uh, that's a pretty interesting system, I think, because um, so so basically the way it works is as you play, you unlock more cards and the card pool actually uh, expands. And so, um, you know, the cards aren't necessarily better. You don't need mm-hmm. them to win, but it makes the game more complicated. There's more variance in the runs. And I think that's quite interesting. Like I like having some goal to work towards, like this idea that, um, you know, the game today is not, um, you know, the game is going to be tomorrow that I'm going to unlock new content. I think having that, um, you know, sort of, you know, dopamine hit when you unlock new cards <laughs> or something, like, I do think that's a useful hook. Um, I think where, um, I, I would say I, I also enjoy, you know, other types of meta um, progression, like um, in Hades, like, which is, you know, one of my, my favorite games in, in this, uh, in the roguelike genre. Um, you know, I do like that it has some progression that makes the game easier. I think that's a good from an accessibility standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think my preference is more, you know, the former. So increasing the amount of strategic options, but not necessarily making the game easier, if that makes sense. Got it. I think that's going to tie into some of our discussion later. So that's helpful. 
I can talk that, about deck builders too. I'm not sure where you wanted to uh, to go from there. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, that's the other half of the uh, yeah <laughs> the definition. <laughs> yeah, I guess I spent so long on Rogue. I was like, oh yeah, we have to talk about the other part. Um, yeah, so so deck builder. So that's the other part of, of what we're going to what we're going to be talking about today. And um, this is, I think, a um, I would consider it to be a relatively new uh, uh, subgenre um, of games where. Uh, basically the, um, I think the, the core thing behind deck builders is that, uh, you're building, you build your deck as you go versus, uh, constructing your deck in advance or, or something like that. And so typically the pattern you see in, um, deck builders is you start out with some sort of basic deck and, you know, typically that deck has, you know, some basic attack cards and basic defense cards or, you know, other very simple cards. Um, and the idea is that, you know, over the course of your adventure, you're going to, um, you know, remove cards from your deck, like remove the bad cards, add, uh, you know, better cards over time. And, you know, and on a successful run, often the, um, uh, your deck will be greater than the sum of its parts. So you're not just sort of randomly picking, you know, all the best cards or something, but you're sort mm-hmm. of looking for synergies between cards. You're seeing, you know, how to exploit the game systems by, um, you know, building your deck in a certain way, um, anticipating challenges that might come up, um, and really tailoring your deck in particular directions. So, for instance, um, again, I can't just pick all the best cards. Maybe I'm picking cards that have a certain theme, like I'm going to make a poison deck or something. Um, and so I'm going to really focus on on cards there so that, you know, when I put my deck together, I have this very efficient engine um, that, you know, really makes the most of the sort of synergies between the cards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think synergies is honestly the most fun element of deck building for me. And in like any games that I find, it's kind of, it's almost like a, a micro version of, of min-maxing, right? Where you try to find patterns in the cards and when you find something unique and you create this like unique experience. Um, I think that's where the gameplay gets gets a ton of fun uh, because there's just so many different combinations on on, on top of each other that um, you're, you're kind of constantly discovering if it's a, if it's a, a good game. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that. And I think um, we, maybe we'll talk more about this later, but I think one of the, the cha- most challenging parts of, um, you know, developing deck builders is, um, you know, figuring out how to enable interesting synergies between cards. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and like, I think if, if games don't do this well, I think it's, you know, it's, it's apparent to players, but it, it's hard to debug why it is the case. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's, it's not enough just if you're developing a game in this genre, um, you know, it's not enough just to, you know, throw a bunch of stuff at the wall. Like you really have to think through about, you know, how do I give players interesting tools um, in, in order to, you know, figure out synergies between cards? Because it's very apparent, I think, when you develop a game and there's just not synergies between things. So I think on the surface, uh, there's a lot of different ways that roguelites and deck building kind of fit into each other, right? Like you have this idea of constantly building on the past experience or trying something new every time. But can you maybe like paint a more clear picture on how these kind of fuse together and what these games can kind of look like? Yeah. Um, and so I, I think, you know, if, if we go back to sort of the base definitions and look at, you know, what's important in, in each of them um, as far as the definition goes, you know, from the roguelite side, um, you know, we have the, uh, you know, procedurally generated content. Um, we have um, the, you know, sort of replayability. On the deck building side, obviously, we're, we're bringing in cards or, or kind of similar elements. And so when you fuse these two things together, what you end up with is, um, you know, a game where you, you go on adventures, you build your deck of cards, um, and, you know, you, you sort of have to deal with the hand that you're dealt, so to speak. So you don't know what cards you're going to get. You don't know exactly what, you know, order the encounters are going to appear in or, or anything like that. But you basically have to make do with the situation or, you know, make do with the cards that you're dealt. Um, and then, you know, build your deck up over time, um, you know, figure out the synergies between the cards and, um, you know, complete your run. And when you don't succeed on the first time or even the 10th time, um, you know, going back and knowing that the next time you play, you're going to build a different deck and you're going to have a different experience as you play through it. Yeah, I, I, I think that makes sense. Um, I think I put this in the notes. Hopefully I put this in the notes. I'm not just stealing somebody's words. Um, but 
when when I was thinking about the genre games, I said if I can sum up this genre in one word, it would be choice, mm-hmm. right? Making choices, and something that Raza and I have been talking about a lot this season is about the rhythm of games. Um, just to catch up real quick, um, because you haven't heard any any of the other episodes <laughs> yet, is you know when you're playing a game, there tends to be this rhythm of doing different types of tasks. Um, so when you're playing a tactical shooter for instance you're spending some time strategizing then you're actually executing and then you're changing things on the fly um i I feel like the notion of choice is a very big part of roguelike deck builders because Mm -hmm. that's how you you know change your strategy synergize we've been talking about that a lot Mm -hmm. um maybe specific for you (laughs) i was wondering how you think about kind of these decision points in in meteor fall maybe Mm -hmm. Like when when do you think is like the right time to provide these provide your players um, with like a branching path or, or or choice? Yeah, I think that, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I think in um, I, I think choice, I, I would agree with you. I think is is pretty core to this genre, um, and there's various um, various points in in Meteor Fall journeys, and and then also in Crummit's Tale, where you know the players presented with um, you know important choices. I think. One of the, the main areas this comes up, and this applies not just to my games, but I think, you know, any games in this genre are, um, you know, deciding what cards to add to your deck or if to add, mm-hmm. you know, you want to add a card at all. So, um, uh, you know, in, in Crummit's Tale, as again, as well as like Slay the Spire, Monster Train, etc., um, you know, you have to make difficult choices about, you know, you're presented with three cards and which of these, da- which of these three cards um, is, is the right fit for your deck or do you want to add one of these cards at all? Um, And one of the most challenging things I think in this genre is deciding, like not just adding every card to your deck, but sort of deciding whether or not it fits and just skipping in in many cases. So I think that's, um, I think there's a lot of, I don't think there's a lot of decision points uh, in this genre. Um, You know, this being one of them um, in uh, Monster Train is another good example in this genre where um, after you uh, complete one of the stages, you have to decide between two uh, branching paths and each branching path has uh, maybe like three or four different, um, you know, bonuses or encounters you could call them. And it's things like um, you can, at this node, you can recruit a, you know, a a unit to join your team, or you can remove a card from your deck. And if you pick this other path, um, you know, there'll be some sort of special encounter or you'll get to upgrade a card. And mm-hmm. so, you know, you have to sort of make this choice like, oh, man, do I want to go down this path on the left? Do I want to go this down this path on the right? And so I think, um, you know, I, I think that's part of what makes it interesting is that you're very frequently presented with, you know, very impactful choices that will you know, influence the rest of your run. I do think what's really interesting, though, is that the foundation of these games and these genres are often built on the opposite of choice to some degree, too, though, right? Mm. Like when you start off this, uh, start off any run, more often than not, you're 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 dealt like a random set of cards, and mm-hmm. and they may build on uh, build on past uh, runs, but fundamentally, you're running on on random choices, on on random draws, and you can't necessarily always choose what's what's being dealt to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second component is like the dungeons and the worlds themselves, right? Like they're, they're fundamentally randomized. And so sometimes you don't really know what you're getting yourself into, but like building that rhythm can be like an interesting balance of like, you are choosing the route that you take, but at the same time, there's a, a, a level of surprise and suspense that's built into the structure of the game that keeps you on your toes a little bit, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it does. And I would agree with you. I think that's one of the most fun parts of the genre is like, you know, you're making these choices, but you don't have, you know, full control, right? Because you don't know what cards are going to be offered. And so mm-hmm. you might yeah. go into the deck saying, hey, I, you know, today I want to make a fire deck, but you're not dealt any fire cards. So um, <laughs> I think sort of take, taking away the ability to sort of predict what choices you're going to have, I think is is also very fundamental. So yeah, I would agree that you know, choice, but there, you know, with an asterisk, there's some limits to the choice that you're going to have. Yeah, for sure. Um, I know you met fire deck as in like maybe fire magic, but I, I did. imagined like <laughs> that mixtape is fire, you know, <laughs> got it. Your deck I, is fire. <laughs> yeah. I did mean like fire magic, but yeah, I, I think that's a, a fair interpretation. 
Well, great. That was a, a, a pretty thorough overview, I think, of the two different genres and the way that kind of meld together. Um, ho- hopefully it's a good foundation for our listeners. I think now is a good time maybe to jump into some of the different features that kind of define the genre. Um, I, I see there's a, a couple of different ones here. Maybe you folks can can tell us a little bit more about what they look like. Yeah, uh, I can start with the first one because it's the easiest. Um <laughs> I, one of the main features is randomized run-based gameplay. So we talked a lot about, you know, roguelikes, roguelites. Um, they have a tendency to be kind of, you start a run, you go until you die or you get to the end. You're basically trying to get as far as possible on a procedurally generated dungeon or environment. Um, and that is one of the main features, right? In, encounters in these roguelike deck building games are typically randomized. We've been talking about it. And um, no run is ever the same because, you know, even even if you take the same quote unquote choice every time, the uh, different choices that you're presented with change due to the randomization that happens. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, another key feature that that I would add is, um, you know, building your deck over time. So, you know, like I mentioned um, you, uh, you know, you often start out with some sort of, um, you know, basic deck. Often um, these decks are associated with a particular uh, class. So like warrior or mage might have different starting decks, but usually with um, fairly basic cards. And um, over the course of the run, you'll add cards or remove cards, you'll upgrade cards and basically uh, tailor your deck. Um, And again, the, you know, Ideally, the, uh, you know, your deck ends up being more than the, the sum of its parts. So, um, you know, what you're trying to do is build a, you know, a very efficient engine that um, sort of exploits the, the different synergies between the cards. Um, you know, often when talking about deck builders, as you know, the, the word deck implies, um, often we are talking about card games. So games like Slay the Spire, Monster Train, uh, Meteor Fall, like all these games use cards. Um, but there are other games which are not, you know, technically deck builders because there's there's no cards, but do sort of fit, um, you know, kind of this the same idea where you're you're sort of building up over time. And um, you know, a good example here is um, uh, Dicey Dungeons. Um, there's another great uh, game on mobile called Slice and Dice, um, and you know, very similar, uh, you know, very similar concepts, but you know, involving dice where you mm-hmm. uh, you're trying to improve your improve your dice, like the faces on your dice or, um, uh, you know, how your, how your dice are rolled or how you can use those dice. And so, um, you know, that, that's another, another element to consider as, as part of the genre is like how you build your, how do you build your, uh, your deck or your dice or whatever over mm-hmm. time. I think what's really cool about this is that when we say building the, the canonical thing that people think of is adding, adding cards. Mm. Um, but more often than not, it's removing cards and modifying mm-hmm. cards. That's actually mm-hmm. like the game breaker, pretty advanced play, right? Like I think yeah. the most advanced people are trying to get rid of literal deck cloggers as they're yeah. often called mm-hmm. which are cards that are just there to kind of slow you down sometimes. or that are, uh, they're just not adding to your case. And so, the best players are optimizing for removing those as much as they are adding the best cards to their deck. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. And I think it's one of the um, maybe biggest mistakes that, that new folks to the genre, um, you know, might make where, you know, you're offered a card after beating an encounter. You're like, sure, like, you know, I'll take that card. It seems like a reward. Um, mm-hmm. and, and really more advanced players will often, you know, decline cards because it doesn't fit. And, um, you know, in some games, it's, it's very common to have like a very minimal deck like, you know, maybe with this view is, you know, four or five cards because, you know, small decks are more predictable. You can sort of predict exactly what's yep. going to happen and what you're going to draw. You're not sort of hoping you draw the right card at the right time. It's like you've, you've trimmed your deck down so that, you know, you've, you've trimmed all the fat and the only thing that's left are the cards that you want. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, yeah, I would agree with that. It's it's not just adding. It's also just, you know, uh, sort of like um, pruning your deck as well is really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I'm like a hyper aggressive cutter. Playing games or like yeah. in, in life? Let me, let me that. We can put that next to the fire deck in terms of <laughs> No, I, I I was gonna plus one that comment because I think a game that really teaches players on how to do that properly, or at least for me, was Slay the Spire because mm-hmm. 
that game tends to put in kind of these like curse cards, like cards mm. if they're in your hand or you play them, they they like take away from your health and stuff. Um, and you actually have to like actively move towards a path where you can remove cards because you you can't do that, you know, just randomly. So mm-hmm. I I really like that because other roguelike games, um, I don't know if you folks, this is like diverging, but like things like Binding of Isaac, for instance, mm. you just try to add as many upgrades to your character mm-hmm. as possible. Of course, you, you have to make the, the right choices. Um, but I think, I, I feel like roguelike deck builders are a little bit more sophisticated in, in the uh, different types of API calls, let's say. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> Jesus Christ. We do this as a break from our job, Justin. Not to talk about API calls. Yeah. Uh, one oh thing one, one mm-hmm. thing I would say about, um, and it sort of relates to your, your curse card comment, so maybe this is a little bit of a tangent, but um, I think this is something that's also very interesting about the genre that you often see is um, uh, ways to make to force you to sort of reevaluate whether or not cards are valuable or not. So, so mm-hmm. something I think Slay the Spire does that's super interesting is like what you said, um, removing curse cards from your deck. Like, yeah, that's generally a good idea because curse cards are bad and they clog up your hand or they have mm-hmm. some bad thing. But Slay the Spire also has, um, you know, cards or um, this concept of relics, which are like passive bonuses in the background which actually um, give you benefit if you have curses in your hand. Like mm-hmm. maybe you gain health whenever you draw yeah. a curse and stuff. And so I think that's one thing that's, that's very interesting and also important because you're going to play this game lots of times is, you know, ways to, um, you know, change how you might evaluate the value of a card. Um, another good example in um, Slay the Spire is, um, you know, typically you want to build a, uh, you know, a deck with different cost cards. So some low cost cards or maybe some high cost, some like more powerful cards. Um, but there's an item in that game which randomizes um, the cost of cards between like, I don't know, zero and three or, or something like that. It's called the mm-hmm. Snack And that's also a very interesting item because it fundamentally changes how you approach deck building. So if the cost is random from zero to three, you don't want any low cost cards. You want all high cost cards because you might be able to play them for free or for very cheap. Yeah. And so I think that's also like, you know, a very critical point to the genre, like, you know, forcing you to reevaluate um, how you might evaluate a card over another. Yeah, I, I, I think another feature I want to bring up because I think Raza and I joke about this a lot. Um like every game is a rhythm game. I think based on the <laughs> definition so far, I'm not going to elaborate on that any further. So I'll pause that there. But like, if you think about Hades, for instance, yes, there's no deck building. But if we're arguing that Dicey Dungeons is a roguelike deck builder, should Hades also be a roguelike deck builder? And I think how we wanted to narrow down the definition a little bit more here is that the combat in these games tend to be turn-based, right? Mm-hmm. It's not you know, active real time fighting game style. There's some notion of uh, resources. So players tend to have mana or action costs. You can't just play your whole hand every turn. Um, So there's some uh, kind of constraints in that manner. And it goes back between kind of the player and the enemy in terms of who gets to deal damage and defend. Um, And of course, as you're playing these cards or or quote unquote cards, they can range from simple damage, defense, healing, um, all the way to complicated effects that may, it may be like a damage over time, or um, maybe something that triggers after a couple turns later in the future. So um, I just want to bring that up in terms of the combat of these games tend to be more turn based. And there are constraints in terms of what you can do versus maybe let's say Hades where everything's happening in real time and you can, you know, do crazy combos and just wipe the entire uh, floor in one go. Yeah. What one. Um, so I think that's a, I think that's a, a, a good point. Cause you know, as you, as you were talking, I was like really thinking about like, Hmm, like, you know, is Hades a, a roguelike deck builder? And I, I definitely don't consider it to be one, but I was, I was trying to see if it fit based on our, our definition. Um, what, one, th- one point I was going to add is, um, you know, I would say, although frequently thematically, um, you know, the games, you know, are combat oriented, like you're, you know, we talked about roguelikes are typically in a dungeon or some sort of adventure and you're, you know, fighting monsters oftentimes. Um, there are some examples of games which have, um, 
you know, some sort of, uh, you know, some sort of deck building mechanic that, um, you know, has you competing with others, but maybe not in the traditional combat sense, which I think is mm-hmm. also interesting. Um, one, one example, which is essentially combat, but sort of themed differently is uh, Griftlands, which has, um, mm. has two systems. It has uh, one, like a, a deck that's based on uh, combat, so fighting, but it has yeah. another deck you have, which is based on debating and the mechanics are similar, but slightly different. So you might want to convince um, an NPC about something. And so there's a quote unquote fight, but actually like a discussion or debate um, with that NPC. So I think that's interesting. Um, I think a more pure example of that. Um, and I don't even know that I consider this to be a roguelike uh, deck builder, but it kind of is. Um uh, called Signs of the the Sojourner, and that's an interesting game. Which um, again is often it's it's about having discussions with characters or debates with characters. It uh, you know it, it's 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 almost like a, a domino type game where your your cards have different symbols on them, and you try and mm-hmm. match the symbols to the symbols of your your conversation partner. Um, so I think it is common in, in this genre to have games where you are explicitly like fighting, like your abilities are themed as like, you know, slash or fireball. But I think it's also interesting to highlight in the genre, like you can apply these same concepts to something that isn't purely just fighting a monster or something like it could be around conversations or you could imagine a game around like farming or something like that. So I think it is, I think it is a, uh, a pretty, uh, pretty broad system that can be applied. Would you agree that the combat is more based on or is more foundationally set in strategy as opposed to like reacting? So like, for example, in Hades, there is like the mechanical skill of actually controlling the player and like reacting in real time. Whereas in something like Inscription or any of the other deck building games, you have time most of the time to like actually look through the cards you have, make a strategic decision. And it's less about like how mechanically you can control the characters. Yeah, I think I think that's definitely um, I think that's definitely a fair point. Like it's it's not a it's not a genre that you know values like um, you know fast decisions or like it, it's a it's a genre you where you can take your time and like figure out the best um, the best move. I would agree with that. Yeah, that makes sense. Is there any relaxing uh, <laughs> roguelike deck builders? <laughs> Is anyone out here like what? doing an idle roguelike deck builder? <laughs> oh, um. I don't know if that would even fit within the definition at that point. I don't know. It could be interesting to have one where you're like, I'm imagining a city building roguelike deck builder. Mm-hmm. Uh, where you're, <laughs> at this point, I'm just combining genres together for the sake of it. I'm going to cut all this out so nobody gets any ideas. Oh, that's right. I have so many. I want to combine city building with like every genre. This is even for the podcast. Like I just want to try it. it would be a so narrative single player city builder? I oh. genuinely think a narrative city builder would would change the game. I think it would change the game. Literally. I think I think you could I think you could build I think you could probably like I, I, I'm sort of a believer that you could apply like I was talking about the the points about um you know you could apply this to other things like um like conversations, like I have mm-hmm. thought about applying it to things like farming. Um, I think you could definitely apply like a lot of the same concepts to uh, to a deck builder. Um, uh, Eric, let's get some time on the calendar. The, I was gonna, <laughs> I was gonna suggest um, it might be worth you, you taking a look if you haven't, because um, pretty cheap. This game called Islanders, um, which I'd recommend. Um, yeah, I think I have it. Yeah, and and it's not it's not like a deck builder. There's no actually deck building mechanics, but as you reach certain milestones, you get you get to um, you know you get quote unquote packs of cards, and you get mm-hmm. to pick between oh do I want the city pack or do I want the circus pack? Um, and so I could imagine you know taking that a step further um, and leaning more into the cards or leaning more into the city builder, but. I think absolutely you could you could apply a lot of these concepts to like a city builder. Like I, I see the um, a lot of the same themes I mm-hmm. think could apply to different genres, even though they're most typically applied to you know D and D style games with like combat yeah. and monsters. Like the, the mechanics would work elsewhere. I think. Yeah, makes sense. Um, all right, we have deviated once again. <laughs> uh, it's fine. It's fine. Uh, just makes future Tristan's work harder. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So it sounds like a lot of this it, uh, is, is fundamentally built upon trying out a lot of different things and then discovering the things that kind of work best. And there's almost like a meta component to it. Maybe you guys can can kind of expand on that. Yeah, I think in the um, when we were sort of defining the genres, um, you know, we talked about the difference between kind of roguelike and roguelite. And, you know, typically roguelite has, has some sort of meta progression. Um, and, you know, some examples of this in the genre, um, uh, Slay the Spire, Monster Train. I think both of these games use, um, you know, a very, like, again, like a very horizontal system, as, as I call it, where as you play, you unlock um, not necessarily stronger cards or stronger content of any kind, you're not necessarily stronger between runs, but the um, you know the, the complexity of the cards you have, the size of the card pool that um, you know you might draw cards from is is larger. Um, and so I think a lot of games in this genre approach um, progression from from that standpoint. Um, I'm trying to think of examples of games where perhaps uh, you know roguelike deck builders where you actually get stronger um, as as a form of meta progression, but. I think a lot of them are, are more, you know, the card pool is expanding. You're unlocking more complicated cards and things like that. Yeah, it might be stronger in the sense that you have more variance in strategy that you can use. I think it's it's strong it's strong it's stronger in some way, but also you know more variance uh, makes it harder to um, you know plan a route through a run. Like you mm-hmm. like the a larger card pool means your run is less predictable. Um, so I think it it generally makes the game harder, but I think it also is a benefit to new players who, um, you know, might not like it might be like having too many cards up front might be kind of overwhelming. So it's in my mind. So I think of it like a um, almost like an extended tutorial a little bit where, mm-hmm. um, you know, difficulty, uh, you know, sort of ramped up over time. And that also keeps the game fresh because, you um, you know, after 10 hours, 20 hours, like you're still seeing new stuff that you haven't seen before. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think there's a community element to it. That's also, that's also a lot of fun. Um, I mean, you can say this about almost any game, but I think I remember when, when Hades came out, uh, I would spend like so many hours just watching different builds mm. on, um, on, on YouTube. Cause people were just finding ways to break the game and to mm-hmm. like really clever combinations. Um, and for inscription in particular, like, the community is massive. There were so many people talking about little Easter eggs and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, and it's a, it's a ton of fun, I think, to dive into that component. Yeah, it's definitely interesting to see because, um, you know, one thing that, that I've observed about this genre is that, um, you know, even though mechanically the game is very simple, like there's not like fast reflexes you need to have or anything like that. Like anyone can sort of execute a sequence of moves and, you know, get to the same outcome. But the skill ceiling is surprisingly high. Like if you watch the best players yep. of Slay the Spire, like they'll win every time, even at a um, you know high level of difficulty. Versus a new player, um, even though there's no reflexes or anything they need to build, um, you know, or is going to lose most of the time. And so you know, I think one of the most effective ways for new players to learn is like you know watch high level play of of you know pros who play Slay the Spire or something like mm-hmm. that, and just you know listen to them think through like why they add or don't add a card. Like it's pretty fascinating actually, like the, the um, sort of level of play that, that some folks show there. Yeah, for sure. Sorry. Now I'm like debating in my head if auto chess battlers are roguelike deck builders in some way. (laughs) I I cannot. It's stuck in my head. It's almost like all of these genres are just made up. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> are roguelike deck builders RPGs? No. It's, <laughs> it's funny because I feel like half these episodes have ended with Tristan and I being like, oh wait, does this does this exist? Is that that? Or wait, I disagree with you on this definition. I mean I I I, I definitely agree it's all sort of made up. I, I do think that um I do think like if you look at um like TFT or super auto pets or something like that, like <laughs> I think a lot of the same concepts actually do apply to both. And like, mm-hmm. I would hesitate to call it that because um, it's like, oh, deck builder sort of implies, you know, existence of a deck or maybe dice or something like that, some sort of physical component. But like, um, you know, the idea of, oh, you're going to get, there's random choice. It's very hard. There's going to be, um, uh, you're going to have to 
you know, draft cards. You have to pick one of three different options. Like a lot of the same right. mechanics and concepts are similar. So I think it is like a, you know, TFT. I think is very closely related to deck roguelike deck builders. I would I would say. I've never heard of this game before. Super Auto Pets. It sounds very like good. It, Transformers. It, it's a good. Um, this is very much a segue. It's a very good intro to <laughs> auto chess. Like if you've heard of, you know, team, team, what's it? Team fight tactics or yep. um, auto chess or any of that. This is a game you can play on your phone and it's, um, you can play async. So you don't need to spend 30 minutes, 40 minutes playing. Um, you can play around in between meetings. Um, and then, <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> in between quote unquote in between meetings and uh and then come back to it later so it's 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 worth a look it's free so yeah okay cool so i feel like we've overviewed a bunch of the different components of this genre done a pretty good job of it uh so for the listeners that are still kind of new to this and and maybe like wondering whether this is the right genre for them to even try out still could you guys name like a couple of reasons why people like this genre and like what 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 makes it appealing for them yeah um i can burn through these really quickly because I, I think the recommendations is probably going to be more useful to the, uh, to yeah. the listeners. So uh, the three things that we had put were, one, short gaming sessions. You know, these games, if you want to do a run, they tend to take 20 to 40 minutes to complete. It's not like a... I, I'm not knocking on narrative uh, games, Raza, <laughs> I'm sorry. But, like, you're, you're not going to sit down and, and play, like, four hours and watch all the cutscenes and stuff. You can play these games, do a couple runs, you can pause, you know, in the middle. So it's really easy to pick up and play. I think Eric even mentioned super um, auto pet. Sorry. I'm trying to remember the auto pets. (laughs) Super 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 auto pets. It's even like asynchronous. You can play it like when you have time, you don't have to wait on anything. Uh, Second, there's a heavy strategic element, which means um, there's a lot of learning that players have to do through trial and error. Uh, you can develop different strategies. You're learning from your mistakes and finding new combinations. And, you know, we talked about synergies in this episode. Um, so, you know, players won't be in the exact same situation twice, which keeps it more refreshing, right? You're not repeating the same thing over and over again. Um, and to that point, I we also put in infinite replayability. Because these games are based on choices, there's a lot of randomizations, Um they're, you're actually able to make the games as easy or hard as possible. I think, you know, whenever I watch, uh, like, Slay the Spire runs on Twitch, and, and, you know, you folks can jump in as well, there are people that can that make it harder on purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of these games have features that make it harder for the players, so it's not, you know, super easy, and you can always win every time. So Slay the Spire has these things called ascensions, where maybe the bosses have more health, maybe you take more damage, maybe you heal less during uh, between fights. Monster Chain has challenges, etc. So you can always impose challenges um, you know, by yourself that are not really built into the game. Yeah, I think people definitely look at ways to break the game almost, um, both in, in yeah. good ways and bad ways. Uh, and and that's kind of goes back to the meta level, right? Like you, once you finish, quote unquote, finish the game, you can still keep going and, and find like new ways to find enjoyment. That's um kind of makes me think of one thing that we haven't mentioned as part of the genre, but I think it very much is, is that um, often these games are single player games. So it's you versus the, um, you know, AI or or something Mm -hmm. like that. And um, I think that's important, um, you know, when thinking about breaking the game, because one difference between like a Slay the Spire versus like a Hearthstone or or something like that is that uh, having combos um, and synergies, which are kind of broken, um, is actually something that's not too big of a deal, um, as long as those are, you know, maybe hard to pull off or something like that. And one thing I found, um, both playing these games and also developing them is, uh, you know, players really enjoy finding ways to break the system, like they like finding ways to get like a infinite combo or, or something like that. And while balance is important, because the game needs to be challenging, um, you know, if you have a combo that is, you know, difficult to pull off and maybe allows you to, you know, go infinite so that your turn mm-hmm. never end or something like players really enjoy finding that and exploiting that. And that's only possible in a game where it's you versus the AI, because it wouldn't be fun to play against as a, you know, a human opponent. Yeah, I've definitely been trolled in Dominion a few times by people like that. <laughs> <And it's> not, <laughs> Dominion too, I guess you could do that. Yeah. 
um, cool. I think that was, again, a great overview on why some people enjoy these kinds of games. Um, so let's actually give some recommendations. You know, like what, uh, if you guys had to name a few for folks to try out, um, what, are, what, what comes to mind? Um, yeah, so in terms of recommendations, um, you know, I think there are some, some roguelike deck builders which are, you know, really good examples of the genre and some which are, um, you know, maybe adjacent to the genre but are worth mentioning. Um, so I think, you know, in terms of must-play games, like I think the game that's going to top, you know, every list is, is Slay the Spire. And, um, you know, what I really, um, you know, credit Slay the Spire um, with is, uh, you know, really um, bringing this idea of roguelike deck builders to the mainstream. Um, mm-hmm. There were, you know, various experiments and kind of smaller games. Uh, Dream Quest is one example that, you know, sort of kicked off the genre. And there's, you know, I think a lot of credit to uh, the board game community, games like Dominion, which sort of got us to where we are today. But Slay the Spire, I think, is the first game that, you know, really brought this idea of roguelike deck builders to the mainstream. And I think it mm-hmm. de- deserves a lot of credit for establishing it this as a genre. And that's the, I think Slay the Spire is the reason we can have a podcast about roguelike <laughs> deck builders, basically. <laughs> I've actually never played it, so I should probably give it a go. I I think it's one of my favorite games, maybe like second to one of the other games we'll be talking about. I think one of the things that I really like about Silly Spire is there's like there's a lot of different choices you can make in terms of the characters because there's a lot of unique characters that have different decks. Um, mm-hmm. And within each of them, there are multiple different strategies that you can take. I like playing the uh, the Witch Doctor. I don't know what the official names are called, but the uh, Witch Doctor character and then just try to force poison decks every mm. time. Yeah, yeah. I think the um, I think the uh, the silent. I think is the character you're, you're probably referring to. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I enjoy the same character, and and I liked playing um, you know, decks where you have you you can play lots of cards on your turn. So, um, basically running through your entire deck on on one turn just by like chaining cards together. Mm-hmm. Um, another another game which is you know newer in this genre, but I think you know, is also going to be, uh, you know, very influential in the long term is uh, Inscription. Um, and I, I don't want to, you know, spoil too much about Inscription because there's, <laughs> there's a lot, there's a lot to, to dig into there. That's, that's could be a podcast on its own. But, um, you know, I think Inscription brings, um, you know, a lot to the genre as well. Um, it's definitely a lot different than, than games like Slay the Spire. Um, I think some of, um, you know, among other things, I think, you know, one thing that Inscription brings is, um, really like story and atmosphere like mm-hmm. Slay the Spire I think the reason it's so popular is because um, of the mechanics like it's a very pure yep. I would call it a systems game like it's it's excellent and it's systems and it's a very tight you know very tight gameplay it's very balanced um, inscription um, you know I think what, it, what the way it takes a genre forward is through its story through its atmosphere and I think that, um, you know, will change how people think about this genre and, it, and, you know, introduce new people to it. Yeah, totally. I think Inscription is a perfect example of my thesis that narrative can change any genre. Uh, hence the narrative city builder game uh, that will be doing <laughs> before I die. Um, but it, it really does do like a, a really great job. I mean, Inscription for me was probably the first major roguelike deck builder that I played. Um, other than tinkering around with with your games, Eric. Um, mm-hmm. And I couldn't put it down, honestly. Like once I got hooked into the narrative, I was just nonstop playing until I finished. And even after finishing, I was reading on on, on Reddit and I was uh, like trying to do another run to, to like find little Easter eggs and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're at all interested in like digging into a, a game with a lot of secrets, I think Inscription is by far probably um, the, the, the like best one to dive into from this list. I think the um, other thing I want to note about Inscription is like it has variants of different types of roguelike deck builders. Mm. Mm-hmm. I don't want to get into the spoilers, but it's not like the the same type of game. Yeah. Throughout the whole thing, it, it, yeah. it like turns it on its head multiple times. Yeah. I would agree with that. Yeah, it's a very meta game. On yeah. it's like meta on top of meta on top of meta. Um, so I feel like if I'd played some of those classics, I would have gotten even more out of the game, uh, mm-hmm. than like some people 
who who've been playing games like this for a while probably got out of it. Um, but I think even for newcomers, it's a pretty good first first or second entry into the genre. So so one other other game that um, you know I would recommend uh, checking out, and you know I acknowledge that I was a developer of this game, so you can take it with a, a grain <laughs> of salt. Is uh, is Meteor Fall uh, Journeys, and then later we'll talk about a little bit about Meteor Fall Crummit's Tale, which is a follow up. Um, this game came out, I developed it around the same time that, uh, Slay the Spire came out. So I think they were in, in development in parallel. And I think what, what is different about Meteor Fall is, um, I think a couple things. One is that it's, um, you know, Meteor Fall Journeys is very much a, uh, it's a, it's a roguelike deck builder that's, you know, made for mobile. It's made mm-hmm. for shorter sessions, um, you know, rather than a Slay the Spire run, which takes an hour. Um, you know, this is a game that you're, you, you can play, um, you know, 30 minutes or, or something like that. Yep. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's in portrait mode on phone. So another goal was, um, you know, it should be something that you could play while you're like on a train or you're commuting or you're in line or something like that. And maybe you're, you're holding something in your other hand. So it's really meant to be like a, um, you know, baby's first deck building roguelike. Like it tries to distill (laughs) some of the, um, you know, complexities of games like, um, you know, it's based on Dream Quest, but, you know, Mm -hmm. it it distills some of the complexity of games like Slay the Spire into, I think, a format that's more easily easily digestible while still retaining a lot of the the core concept. So um, I think, you know, frankly, I think the design is somewhat dated at this point. Like there are a lot of design decisions that I would change with sort of the knowledge I have now and how the genre has evolved. But mm-hmm. I still think it's a good, um, you know, intro to uh, intro to the genre in a format that I think is very mobile friendly. Yeah, it felt like Tinder. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the other, yeah, the other interesting aspect, which I, I uh, neglected to mention was um, part of the way it, it sort of... Um, you know, reduces the amount of complexity is in Slay the Spire. Um, you know, you have a hand of cards, like, you know, say five cards or so. Um, you can play them in any order. And there's a lot of, um, you know, complexity in, in how you play your cards and which card. Um, Meteorfall Journeys uh, simplifies that by giving you only, only one choice. So on mm. each turn, you flip over the top card and you can either uh, swipe right to play that card for a cost, like a mana mm-hmm. cost, or you can swipe left um, which, you know, um, uses up one of your turns, but gives you back some mana. So it's a way to restore your, your mana and your stamina. And yeah. so, um, you know, while that reduces the complexity at like higher levels of play for new players, you're not overwhelmed by like, like, oh man, like which of these five cards do I play? There's only one choice. Your choices are play it or don't play it. And, and I think that does simplify and make things easier for mm-hmm. new players. Yeah, it's uh, just as difficult as Tinder, too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> wah, 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 wah. <laughs> oh, oh, man. Um, um, yeah, um, so another traditional one that we want to recommend was Monster Train. This is probably the uh, the roguelike deck builder, deck builder that I spent the most time in, um, just because I think the combat aspect is a little bit more unique than other games where... You know, it's not one versus one. Uh, and there's how Monster Chain works is you're basically a ch- kind of a train. I, I guess it's a <laughs> kind of set in the title. Uh, you're moving through, you're, you're trying to get to an end goal. And as you are making your way through the different environments, you get into different types of combat situations. Uh, and the train has multiple levels. So you're playing kind of a uh, a deck builder combat on three different layers uh, versus just one board. So um, you, you take a lot. Uh, you sorry. You do. You take turns between combat and defense, where uh, you know you're putting in units, you're upgrading your units, and the enemies are trying to basically get to the core of your train uh, where the engine is. So I think that's where it's a little bit different versus kind of perhaps uh, a 2D type of combat where Slay the Spire, you're, you're kind of fighting 1v1 or 1v3. Um, and I think the the biggest thing that I like about Monster Train is that it introduces this concept of uh, different races that you can play and synergies that can bring in uh, between the races. So there's 
I think six different uh, races that you can play in Monster Train, and you can kind of uh, what do you call it? Um, change them between a primary and a secondary, which also brings in different types of cards to the run. Um, where you know it basically increases the number of strategies that you can pull. So I I really like the amount of variance that Monster Train bring, brings in and the difference in combat. Yeah, I think um, I think a mantra train is sort of like a you know tower defense twist a little bit on on slay the spire. Like it, mm. it definitely feels a lot like, hey, there's sort of you know some insurmountable odds. There's like hordes of enemies, and you're trying to prevent them from reaching a goal um, in the most efficient way possible. And so, um, I do really like that aspect. Um, I, I feel like the gameplay is also perhaps a little bit faster than Slay the Spire. Slay the Spire, I think, is very defensive. I think Monster mm-hmm. Train, you have like more options, so it has kind of a, a faster um, feel. It's a little bit less punishing, I find, in terms of the, uh, the deck building aspect. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, overall, I, I definitely feel like it, um, you know, it, it, it feel, mechanically, it's very similar to Slay the Spire in, in terms of like how the resource mechanic work, how the different cards work. Um, but it feels very different because of how it applies those um, those concepts. So, um, yeah, definitely a must play for me in this genre. Yep. Um, one more that I wanted to add, actually, that that fits into this, you know, kind of traditional, um, you know, games in this genre uh, is Grifflands and. Um, Grifflands is also like very mechanic, like mechanically, is very similar still to Slay the Spire, I think, but. Um, I think what Grifflands brings to the table is a more um, narrative-based approach. So mm-hmm. when you play Grifflands, um, you know, even though it is, it is a roguelike, but you're going to play it, you know, over and over, it definitely has a feel that is more of like a traditional RPG. So it, for me, yep. when I played Grifflands, it made me feel like, huh, this is kind of like roguelike deck builder, but meets Final Fantasy a little bit, where you're going to have conversations with characters you're going to go between different nodes um and you know it feels like there's a story that's evolving which is you know very different than slay the spire which again is a very you know system game like it doesn't it doesn't have a lot of it has a little bit of story but not that much um and so i think it's it's worth playing if you want like a more narrative oriented twist on uh roguelike deck builders yeah i don't i this is my fault, but I don't think I ever completed a run of Grifflands. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've I've completed a, a few runs. I haven't played all the characters, so I don't I don't think I've I've seen all that it has to offer. But, um, but but it's it's definitely interesting. I think the, um, you know, one difference between Grifflands and you know the other games is mm-hmm. you know the narrative side. I think is interesting. Um, it also means that the game feels, in my opinion, like much heavier. Uh, yeah, heavier to play. So like, play the spire. I'm like, okay, I just want to get to the action. I want to like build my deck or monster train. I just want to build my deck and like, you know, get to the end. And in Grifland, it's like, oh, I, I kind of got to start, you know, Final Fantasy again. And so I do think it's a heavier experience. Um, mm-hmm. And and you know, has some some overhead due to that. But you know, it's still like, it's a very solid entry in the genre and a very different uh, approach to it. Yeah. So you guys have been describing a lot of these games as being more traditional in general. Mm-hmm. What about the ones that are kind of more off the cuff or or like weird? Yeah. So um, one example that that really comes to mind for me is um, one step from Eden. Um, mm-hmm. And um, you know, as we were talking earlier about Hades, and is Hades a roguelike deck builder? Um, it, it sort of made me wonder is is does one step from Eden even fit this criteria? Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> the reason the reason I decided that it, it it does and even though it is a you know it does require reflexes and it is action oriented. It's sort of like a I think a Mega Man Battle Network style game a little bit. Um, I think the reason it fits is it it has a lot of the same elements. So it does have procedurally procedurally generated content. Um, it does have, um, you know, it does have like that roguelike loop where you're going to have to play it again. Like it's very challenging and the abilities that you have, um, you know, unlike in Hades where you can just, you know, you know, press your attack button and you attack the abilities that you have at any given time in one step to Eden, um, you know, are drawn from a deck. So you have a deck of, yeah. of different cards and abilities 
And, you know, any given time, I think you have two of them. So you can press A or B to do like a fireball or an, you know, an ice bolt or something like that. And after you play it, you draw another card from your deck. And those are the mm -hmm. abilities you have. And so even though it, it, it sort of, you know, isn't a turn-based game like most games in this genre are, it does have deck elements. So you need to think about trimming your deck and not just taking every ability. And it does yeah. have a lot of the other elements of, of roguelikes as well. It looks like it's also co-op, which is interesting, um, it, since that seems to also break away from the general formula of the rest of the games in the genre. True, yeah. Okay, what about the next one? Okay, so Dicey Dungeons is a little bit of an oddball in the sense that your resource management comes from rolling a bunch of dice, um, and depending on the value of the dice that you roll, you can execute um, kind of the different moves that you have in your deck. And these tend to be constrained by different rule sets as well. So maybe a attack is basically the value that, that you roll on your dice. Maybe a defense uh, move is even numbers only. So you can only um, use a dice that has rolled a two, four, or six. So a lot of the constraint and choices come from the fact that you want to build a deck that has uh, a good spread, right? So depending on what values that you roll from your dice, you want to make sure you, you can use as many of these dice as possible. And there are, are different characters that have, you know, uh, different characteristics in terms of you can roll more dice. Maybe you don't even have the number of dice as a constraint. Um, maybe you can combine different cards. There's a lot of different things that they introduce, but it's a little bit of an oddball in terms of that. You're not really constrained by the the, the core resources or you know number of mana in quotes that you have in your deck. Yeah, one other game that I mentioned earlier, which I think sort of fits alongside Dicey Dungeons, is a game called Slice and Dice. And again, it's it, it has a lot of the same themes, I think, as, as roguelike deck builders, but like doesn't quite hit the mark in terms of you know deck builder right there's no cards like um it's it's a slice and dice is a a dice space game and um you know like like dicey dungeons you know the the number you roll matters so you have a um you have a, a team of five adventurers of different classes different classes have um different dice each face on the dice is a different ability um and um, you know, as you progress through the game in typical roguelike fashion, you'll, you'll be presented with different choices. Like you can upgrade a class to, um, there's like a, a sort of branching path. So different, uh, like a mage might become like a battle mage or like a priest or something like that. So there's sort of a branching path that you can sort of take your team. Um, you can also equip your team with different items and the items affect, um, you know, what properties their, uh, their dice faces have. So, you might add a, um, you know, a, a poison item. And so whenever a certain number comes up on the, the dice when it's rolled, um, you know, it adds some poison damage or something like that. And so, um, again, it's, yeah, it's not like a pure deck builder, but like it, it feels very similar in that you're presented with tough choices. You build your team, you build your collection of items over time. And so um, I think um, from a mechanic standpoint, game mechanic standpoint, like you're playing a lot, applying a lot of the same concepts as other games in the genre. I think we need another episode for uh, roguelike dice rollers. <laughs> yeah. uh, since that seems to be a whole other thing. For sure. Um, I think I'll skip. I'll just, I'm kind of too lazy to describe it. I think I'll skip Crumit's Tale because I always have a hard time describing <laughs> what it is. Oh, no. I think one of the, uh, one of the challenges. I think, I think the, uh, the first Meteor Fall game is, is probably good. It's, it's a tough one to describe. I think, it, um, I think it's also what, if I think about what I'm doing differently in the third game, it's making it less difficult to describe. And I, people. I, I was gonna mention that Chromat's Tale is like the Dark Souls of roguelike deck builders. It, like I, I, I don't know if I'm just bad at it, but it's it's very difficult for me. It's very difficult. The only thing, and I could talk about it. The only thing that um, I think I think what I would consider to be different or interesting about it is I I think it does um, it does draw a lot from like board games and um like resource management in a way that's different than other games where, you know, every card in your deck is, um, is sort of a resource and you can throw that, mm -hmm. you can throw it away and that's a resource because throwing mm -hmm. cards away restores health. 
you can use it and then it's a resource because it gives you more strategic options. Um, and, and these types of choices, I think, are, um, you know, more similar in, in uh, board games, um, especially like the um, like Euro style, like worker placement board games or you right. know, other deep board games and, and less common in this genre. So it's, it's pretty unique in that aspect. It also makes it very difficult to describe like what it is exactly. So, yeah, which I think has held it back from more uh, broad success. I think Tristan described it. It's the Dark Souls of roguelike deck building games. <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, it's it's funny. I I find um, in in reviews I've gotten for it, some people are like, "This game is impossible," and so I added an easy <laughs> mode. And then they're like, "It's still impossible." And other people are like, "I beat it on my first try, and I want a refund." So um, <laughs> that sums up that sums up to me the the life of a game developer. People saying it's you know the Dark Souls of roguelikes, and other people saying like it's too easy. And, uh, you know, I want a refund. So, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Loading Screen. Hope you enjoyed our deep dive into roguelike deck builders. Loading Screen can be found on all your favorite podcast providers, such as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podbean, Overcast. You can find, find it on anything that you use. Um, as always, I've been your host, Tristan John Beraza. And our special guest this week, Eric Ferraro. See you next time. Thanks. Thanks. Bye.